All right, Second John, verses 12 and 13. We finished the, the epistle tonight, uh, beginning in verse 12. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Last week we considered John's instruction and warning in verses 9 through 11 concerning the doctrine of Christ. We go back to verse 9 just to again review this where John says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Within verse 9... Uh, we see that John makes a distinctive contrast by explaining that those who transgress and do, uh, and do not abide in the doctrine of Christ, that they do not have God. But then, of course, he contrasts that with those who, who do abide in the doctrine of Christ, that have both the Father and the Son, as the latter part of verse 9 states. And as we saw last week, we begin by looking at the first statement John makes when he says, whosoever transgresseth. And the verb translated transgresseth in this verse, it means to break or to go aside. And so he goes on to say, and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, that he hath not God, whosoever transgresseth, whosoever breaks away, whosoever goes aside from the doctrine of Christ, does not have God, does not have a relationship with God specifically, does not possess the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God does not possess them. And the verb abideth, as we as well saw last week, means remain, to stay, and to reside. And the noun doctrine means instruction and teaching. So John is simply stating that all those who break away or go aside from the instruction, the teaching of Jesus Christ, not just the teaching about Jesus Christ, this is the teaching of Christ, the te- his teaching himself and the teaching that is true of him. If they do not remain in his teaching, that these individuals do not have God and they do not have a relationship with God. Yet in contrast, he then declared in, later on verse 9, the latter part, He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. And the verb abideth used here is the same word translated in the previous portion of this verse, as is the noun doctrine and the verb hath. And this is important, as I I shared with you before, because John is saying that the present condition hath hath not God and hath God speaks of a present condition with an ongoing implication. So he is saying here that those who do not continue remain in the doctrine of Christ and the teaching of Christ that they presently do not possess God, they do not have the Spirit of God, and there's nothing indicating that they ever will. And so it doesn't mean that God cannot intervene and save, because if that were not true, none of us would have any hope, none of us would be saved. But yet he's saying that that form of a lifestyle, it it, it implies that one is just going to continue in this state he is in, and therefore ultimately perish, which we know is the case and the sad condition in which man finds himself. And we find that the word abideth as well, this verb, it's the same word used in both the first part, first half of verse 9 and the latter part of verse 9 when he says he that abideth not and he that abideth in. And so when he uses that word abideth, it's the same word that is translated abide in John 15. And that is the word which means, again, to continue to rem- or to remain. And so as Jesus gives the example saying that he, the Father is the husband and he is the true vine, we are the branches. To his disciples he speaks, says, you are the branches. And then he says, if any man abide in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. But if you do not abide in me, then you're cut off as, as a branch that is, is cast into the fire to be burned. And he says in verse 5, of course, for without me ye can do nothing. And we, we visited last week a little concerning the fact that that, that vine that is, or that branch that is in the vine, the branch itself cannot produce any fruit but rather that it is the 
the vine producing through the vine, that, that, that branch bears the fruit of the vine. The life of the vine is flowing into the branch because it's connected into the branch. In other words, this is what Jesus is really uh, teaching to summarize, obviously saying, without me, you are useless and you can do nothing. You have no spiritual life. And so what he's indicating here is that, that a branch has no life of its own. And that is, that is absolutely true. A branch cannot live on its own. It has to be within the vine. It has, same thing with a tree branch. It has to be into the tree. The tree is providing the trunk. The roots are providing the life to the branches. The branches are lifeless and useless apart from the tree. It provides the source of life. It is the source of life. It provides the nutrients. It provides everything that is necessary for the fruit to be born. And if you separate that branch from that tree, anything on that branch dies. The leaves die. The fruit dies. Because it cannot, the branch itself cannot sustain any life. Are you following this? And Jesus is saying, you can do nothing without me. I am the life. I am the source of life. I am life. I produce life. You produce nothing. <laughs> you have no help, no life apart from me. And so it's interesting that John here in his epistles uses the same word abideth as he does in John 15, the gospel concerning the word Jesus uses about the vine and the branches abiding and the vine remaining and, 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 and abiding within him, staying within him. Now, it is noteworthy, as we mentioned last week as well, that in the first portion of this verse, in which John states the evidence that one is not in a relationship with God, that he simply says that that person has not God or hath not God. While in contrast, when speaking of the evidence of one who does have a relationship with God, John then states he hath both the Father and the Son. And so the only relationship, as we see, of course, from this, we're reminded of this truth, that the only relationship one can have with the Father is through the Son. And to be in relationship with one is to be in relationship with the other. John 14, 6-11 teaches this plainly. So then verses 10 and 11, last week we concluded with these verses, "...if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine..." This doctrine is referencing, of course, the doctrine of Christ, the teaching of Christ, the instruction of Christ. Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. John warns that if anyone brings any teaching other than that of Jesus Christ, not teaching about Jesus, but the teaching of Jesus, then do not receive him. Do not greet him uh, or, or wish him well. John warns that we are to refute and reject all teaching which is not that of Christ. And John then declares that to receive or greet those who teach anything other than Jesus is to be a partaker in their wickedness of a false gospel. By the way, we're going to deal with this, and I'm not going to get into this right now. But come Sunday morning, we are going to deal with this within Philippians. It's the same truth that John is speaking of here. And many people misunderstand what Paul is saying in Philippians, uh, and we're going to look into that in some detail on Sunday morning as we move through Philippians and the first chapter concerning the furtherance of the gospel when Paul begins to speak that some preach Christ of contention, some preach of sincerity. And when Paul speaks and then he goes, but I rejoice nonetheless that Christ has preached. But there are some things you must understand about what he is saying lest you misunderstand what he is saying. And it ties in perfectly with that which John is stating here. He says, if anyone come with anything other than the teaching of Jesus Christ... Not teaching about Jesus Christ. There is a distinct difference here. So someone can name drop Jesus in their teaching, and it does not mean that they are proclaiming Jesus. And people think that just because someone says Jesus, oh, that they're teaching truth. That is not always the case. 
And you must remember that. And so Philippians, Paul's going to deal with that. And we're going to look at that uh, as we move forward in Philippians as well. The similarity between the introduction and conclusion of John's second and third epistle is unquestionably obvious. As some have inferred, these two epistles were written with very little span of time between the two. In other words, due to the similarity of the content of the two epistles, it would seem as though they were written by a man with certain truths and concerns pressing upon him at a certain time of his life and ministry. The similarity is not there by chance, and the similarity would definitely, again, infer that, that at least for, would suggest that John writes these epistles to different groups of people, obviously, but yet he writes these two epistles very closely within the same span of time, and that is indicated, again, not just by the similarity of the manner in which they are written, meaning uh, in, in the sense of both being brief or short epistles and such, but also in the fact that John writes them and the way in which he conveys these truths, the truths he the truths he conveys and the manner in which he conveys the truth bear witness that obviously there are certain situations or things, events, or, or circumstances within the church during this moment in time that would weigh heavy upon him or impress him to state these matters in the, in the manner in which he does. And so the span of time is not just in the fact they are brief, the believing the span of time being the closely uh, related, but also the fact of the manner in which he is writing in terms of what is weighing upon him. And so the fact of what is pressing upon him in these moments, I believe, is indicated within both 2nd and 3rd John. And in reality, again, we really find that the truths he speaks of in 2nd and 3rd John, by large, he's already dealt with in great detail in 1st John. So these truths are being conveyed in a much more brief and concise manner in 2nd and 3rd John, but yet there's many references we can find that they're very similar in language in relation to what John is talking about. And so we, we, we understand these similarities are obvious in both the introduction and conclusion of these two short epistles. Uh, the introductions we see, first of all, I'll give you an example, 2nd John 1 and verse 4, 2nd John verse 1 and verse 4, the elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. Then verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I have found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. Then look at Third John verses 1 and then 3 and 4. The elder unto the well of Gaius, whom I love in the truth. For I rejo- Verse 3, for I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. There are obvious similarities here. And, and obviously a pressing issue upon John at the point is that these are individuals that are remaining faithful in the truth, love and truth. He said, I love you in the truth. Then he talks about their faithfulness in the truth, that they are walking in truth, how this brings him tremendous joy again. Then you look at the conclusions of the two epistles, 2 John 12 and 13. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. 3 John 13 and 14. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. As I previously mentioned, these similarities are unmistakable. 
and obviously significant regarding the time of life when John wrote these letters and the events which were at the forefront of Christianity during that time. So remember that John is living in a time in which he's declaring that there are antichrists that are present. The spirit of antichrist is present. And he talks about those who would deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh are antichrist. And so he's dealing with, with these. And by the way, specifically referring to what group of people? The Judaizers. Those who were Jews who were Judaizers. And we find, again, in Galatians, the same issue takes place. They come in and, and they're preaching something other than Jesus, oh, Jesus plus, right? Oh, you can have Jesus, but you must be circumcised, remember? That's the whole issue of what's taking place in Galatians. So they are adding to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They're saying Jesus is insufficient, so you need Jesus plus this. And John is saying this is antichrist, absolutely antichrist. So he's addressing this and dealing with this, and these are matters which are at the forefront of Christianity in these moments. And remember, there are still Jews alive during this time, no doubt, that have converted to the truth, to faith in Christ. And so though the church is becoming a Gentile church, we understand the first century church began with Jews who were converted into f- to faith in Christ, which then progressed into the Gentiles being converted, by large, to faith in Christ. But the Judaizers were coming in, no doubt, to both Jew and Gentile, obviously saying, as in Galatians, saying, oh, well, you need, we, we worship God and you need to follow this because this is God's way. And so they were using their religion, because that's all it was at this point, they were using this religion and a perverse religion at that to come along aside Christianity to influence and pervert Christianity. By the way, the same thing is taking place with the gospel today. People are still doing that with the gospel of Jesus Christ without question. Again, we'll look more into this in Philippians on Sunday morning. But so John is saying these things are antichrist. That's what this is. They're, they're against Christ. Now, let us be clear, again, as I said last week, that you remember in the, in the Gospels, and John's Gospel, as a matter of fact, I believe, and whenever the disciples come to Jesus and they said, oh, we found these people, these men casting out devils in your name, and we forbade them not to do this, right? You can't do that because they're not of us. And Jesus says, no, don't forbid them. If they are not against me, they are for me. So Jesus is not saying that, oh, if you don't walk with this certain group, if you are not part of this certain, this certain church, meaning, you know, congregation, if you, are not, uh, if you don't, uh, if you don't uh, agree exactly with this group of people, then, oh, forbid them, don't greet them. No, no, no. He's saying if someone is not against him, then they are for him. But then the question is, what is against him? Anything that is not of Christ, that he has not declared, that is not true of him as he has declared it to be, and if someone's declaring something other than that which he has declared, then that is antichrist. And so we're not talking about just being in agreement about certain things. We're talking about the truth of who Jesus is, who he declared himself to be, who's proven himself to be, who has testified, the scriptures testify him to be, and if someone is in opposition against that, or if someone's trying to add to Jesus or your need for Jesus, then herein lies the problem. And so that's what is being recognized. Uh, referred to in this context. So with this observation in mind concerning the similarity of the introduction and conclusion of 2nd and 3rd John, we continue our study of the second epistle of the Apostle John, 2nd John 12 and 13. Let's read this again. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. So he begins verse 12 again, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I would trust to come unto you and speak face to face. The first obvious truth 
What John states in this conclusion is the importance that he placed on personal face-to-face fellowship and communication. Although John's epistle is short, especially in relation to his first epistle, John could have written much more in this second epistle as he, as he intimates here. He's saying, I could write so much more to you. I have so much to say to you. And by all indication, it would not be a stretch of imagination to believe that John's second and third epistle would have contained many of the same truths he declared within his first epistle. Whether or not this, his second and third epistle would have mirrored his first, whether or not that's true, John had much of which he desired to communicate to these believers to whom he wrote. And he says, again, he desired to come to them face to face. So John placed a significance. Now look, this has to do, of course, with the gathering of the body, because when John would meet with them, it would be as they gathered together, obviously. And, and this, of course, it, it, this refutes the idea that you can just have church on your own, that you can have church by yourself, because you don't have church. We are the church. But we are only the church when we gather as the church. <laughs> People today have this misconception. They say, oh, I'm the church. No, you're not. You are not the church. The gathered assembling of believers is the church. And when the body is not gathered, we are part of the church. We are part of the body, but we are not the body individually. We're not. And hence, again, communion itself and the importance of the communion as it's to be biblically uh, observed has to do with the significance of the gathered body of Christ and its unity and its purity. We are not individually, personally, a believer in Jesus Christ. I am individually a follower of Jesus Christ. I am individually a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am individually a Christian. I am individually a child of God. I am not individually the church. (laughs) And that has tremendous significance. And John emphasizes that even here when he says... Face-to-face. He desired to be able to gather with these believers and minister to them, and no doubt they would minister to him. Now again, I want to clarify something here that is of extreme significance, and that is that you must reconcile two statements that we make so often, and I believe they're easily reconciled. I don't, when I say we must reconcile them, we must reconcile them in our own mind. They're, not, they're already reconciled, but we must understand them. Uh, we understand that, even as I've referenced Galatians tonight, Jesus is absolutely all-sufficient. So is it true when I say to you that I need the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone? That I need nothing or anyone other than Jesus? Is that not a true statement? It is. I don't need anyone or anything other than Jesus. Is Jesus sufficient or do I need something more than him? But then, I'm speaking now of the significance of the edifying of the body of Christ and us gathering together. So, is it not important that we edify one another and we gather as a body? But here's where we miss the mark. This is where we miss the mark so often. And this is going to sound really odd to you, probably. I've said it before, and it's going to sound a little odd at first, but hear me out. It has to go along something similar to this. When I've said to you before, I love truth more than I love my own family. That sounds odd, doesn't it? until you understand the significance of the statement. If I love my family more than truth, then I will compromise truth for my family. But if I love truth more than my family, I will lead my family, instruct my family, guide my family, correct my family in truth. Because truth is absolute and most important. So, this statement is going to sound similar to that, but you've got to hear me out and follow through to the end of this, this, this truth. 
I don't need you. And you don't need me. I don't need you. And you don't need me. That's true. How can I say I only need Jesus and yet I need you too? That doesn't make any sense. That, that, that's a contradictive statement. So then, how, do, how is this reconciled between the need of Christ and the need for the body of Christ or the church? Well, here's how it is. I don't need you. I need Christ ministering through you. You don't need me. You need Christ ministering through me. Now, we know we are gifted in different ways. So the gifts that we are given, they vary. But you don't need me. You need Christ in me ministering. I don't need you. I need Christ in you. And here's the importance again. Notice, let me prove this to you even further, okay? And this is going to make so much sense to you if you follow with what I'm saying. If you come to gather as the body of Christ and you come with bitterness, envy, strife, do I need you? But you know what I do need? I need you to come as one who is submitted to the Spirit of God within you. I don't need you, and you don't need me. We are not what's important. It's Christ who dwells in us that is important. And if we are submitted to the Spirit of God, He ministers to others through us, and that's what we need as a body because the body has been gifted by the Spirit and the Spirit is ministering through us to one another when we are submitted to Him and God is being worshipped and the body is being edified. But again, see, we put a lot of importance on us and people talking about trying to, you know, we need one another. No, we need to each be submitted to the Spirit of God within us that Christ minister through us to each other because all the body is fitly joined together as God has seen fit to join it together and every joint supplieth meaning that the spirit of god is dwelling in us and as we are submitted to him he is using the gift within us to minister one to another and so this idea that we we don't need people we need christ ministering through and in people because we have to understand we are his body right and if we are his visible body because we are scripturally that's taught to us so if we are the visible body, but yet as his visible body, we do not become Jesus. Is this true or not? The church doesn't become Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. But we are his physical body in this present world. And so as his physical body, he's ministering through us to one another. That's the edification that takes place. And this is greatly misunderstood, and we put so much emphasis on us. And hence, people get more excited about personalities of pastors or their charisma than Christ ministering truth through them. And the same is true about the body. And we look insignificantly upon one another or we exalt one another because here's what we think. Well, this person, you know, who are they really, right? It's not about who they are. It's about Christ in them. And then they say, oh, but this, oh, he's, he's, he's such a great minister or he's such a great servant. No, he's not. That is Christ in him. And what we need is Christ in them, not them. Now, I know I just deflated your egos completely, right? But it's the truth. And we exalt men or we belittle others because we don't see their significance. Why do you think the Scriptures, when talking about body theology or ecclesiology, why do you think the Scriptures clearly teach that every member is needed within the body? And, oh, but that's an insignificant. No, 
it's not insignificant, but it's not because that member itself is significant. It's because that is the function of that member where God has placed it, where God has decided to use that member. And that's what makes it significant. And so it's important that we recognize that. I'm not devaluing relationships of people. Understand, please, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying we have overvalued our relationships while marginalizing the significance of Christ working in and through us to one another, ministry. And so we need Jesus. Again, look, I confess to you, I'm saying this before you, your pastor. You don't need me. You don't need me to teach you. You don't need me to minister to you. You need Christ to minister through me. I confess that readily tonight. I don't have anything myself to offer you, personally. But Christ can minister his truth through me to you. And that is what is significant. And the same is true of you. Absolutely. I'm going to stop for a second. Verse 12, he says in the latter part, I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. So the second truth which John uh, speaks here that we must not overlook is John's conclusion concerning the results of meeting face to face. Notice this, John declared his desire to fellowship with these believers face to face so that or that so that our joy may be full. Now this has to do with both John ministering to them and them ministering to him. Notice the per- pronoun he uses, our, plural pronoun. He's saying not just your joy, but our joy may be full. In John's first epistle, he told the reader that he was writing to them for this same purpose. First John 1, 4 says, and these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. So he says, I'm declaring all this to you that you may experience the fullness of joy. As I mentioned in our, first, in our study of 1 John 1, 4, True fullness of joy is a result of a proper fellowship with the Lord and with other believers who are fellowshipping around the Lord Jesus. Such joy, of which John writes, is only realized through the fellowship we have with Jesus, which will instinctively result in fellowship with one another. As we are in fellowship with the Lord, we then are in fellowship with His body because His body is one, and and the Spirit is edifying through His body one another, as we just discussed. So John, once again, emphasizes this truth in 2 John verse 12. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. So once again, he's saying, look, me coming to you and ministering to you is going to result in a fullness of joy within us all as I am ministering to you and as you are ministering to me. But it's not about you and me. It's about the ministry being accomplished in you and me by the working of God. Verse 13, the children of thy elect sister greet thee, amen. Once again, we are confronted with the dilemma as to whether or not the elect lady in verse 1 and the elect sister in verse 13 refer to literal, literal sisters who John knew or rep, they represent church bodies in which John was involved. Either way, the message remains the same. It's really irrelevant. Truth and love are at the forefront of this epistle, not truth and love as though they are separated, but truth and love as though they are inseparably joined one to another. So when we say truth and love, it's not truth oh, and also love. No, it's truth and love because they are to be conjoined here, not as though they are separated. The letter ends much as it begins. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. 
Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. Then verse 13, the children of thy elect sister greet thee, amen. Now it's not that the introduction and conclusion of the letter sound the same as it is in many of the other cases, but more so that the love of the brethren is expressed in both the welcoming statements and in the farewell. He says, the, 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 the children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. How are they greeting? In love and truth. <laughs> because John would not pass on a greeting that was outside of that context after just writing an entire epistle or letter about the importance of love and truth. And so he's able then to conclude and say, oh, they greet you. How are they greeting? In love and truth. And these are the children of your sister, whether that be a literal physical sister be another body to which they were connected in, in a sense of fellowship and such he is saying in either case whichever it is that those of the children of this elect sister which is a sister of the elect lady in verse one they who are walking in truth and love greet you so this letter is filled with that of love and truth and the importance of this and how that's to be understood as followers of Christ. And so we see that 2 John is very much so akin to 1 John and very much so a, a, a twin to 3 John in many ways. And we'll begin, Lord willing, 3 John on next Wednesday evening. So look to begin that that book, and we've, we will reference again 2 John and 1 John, I'm sure, throughout that study as they are related one to another, and again, considered to be, if you will, twin books, twin epistles. Even though they're not identical, they are very much so the same and carry great significance in, in their meaning and truth. So, All right, so here's the thing. We need to understand just to recap for just a moment. It is important that you and I both understand the significance and the gravity of the necessity for us as individuals to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because again, the last thing you need is me getting up to help you. But what you desperately need is for Christ to minister His truth through me to you. And I'm telling you, I don't need for you to come and talk to me, comfort me, encourage me, but I do need for the Spirit of God to minister through you. I've experienced that even this week um, with individuals, um, and not even individuals in situations outside of this church body, but brothers and sisters in Christ, if you will, and specifically a brother in Christ who has spoken to me in such a manner and, and in such grace that God has used that to minister to me. I, I don't need a friend. I need fellowship in the body of Christ. And what I mean by that is, and that, those are friends, yes, but what I'm trying to say, we speak in such secular terms, and I know friend is a biblical term too, I understand that, but I'm saying we speak of it, things in such a secular way that we, oh, you know, we need good friends. No, you need biblical fellowship is what you need. And those in whom you express and experience biblical fellowship, guess what those people are going to be? They're going to be your friends. <laughs> They're going to be your friends, true friends. 
And so we need to understand this truth and, and recognize this and therefore understand the gravity for and the necessity for us to walk as John indicates in this and, and, and exhorts and instructs in this letter, Second John, that we walk in love and truth because the only way we're going to walk in love and truth and minister in love and truth and live in love and truth is if we are submitted to He who is love and truth, which is Jesus Christ. We need each other in the sense that we need each other to be submitted to Jesus Christ and minister in and through us to one another. And hence, I go back to my original statement concerning all of this. Christ is sufficient. He is all we need. But He has chosen to minister to us through His body in a physical manner that we physically see and physically interact with one another so it's Jesus that we need. And we need Him ministering to us through each other. Walk in love and truth that our joy may be full. 